Our text this evening is Romans 3, uh, verses 21 through 26. Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 21 through 26. Please stand. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Please be seated. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we pray that you would minister to us according to your promise and according to your power, but also according to our need. And surely some of us need to be convicted, some of us need to be comforted, and on one level, of course, all of us need both. Some of us need to be encouraged, some of us need help and strength to persevere, and some of us simply need to be reminded of the glory of the gospel and the foundation upon which it is built, namely Jesus Christ. But for all of us, Father, we pray that you would show us Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. John Donne is a, is a famous poet who had lived a life uh, quite apart from Christ. Uh, but when God got hold of his heart, All of those gifts that he had used for his own selfish purposes were channeled into uh, some of the most beautiful poetry uh, that I've ever read anyway. I've not read a lot. Don't be impressed by that. (laughs) But some of those beautiful poetry I've ever read uh, that highlights Christ and speaks so clearly about our hope. In the gospel, he has these divine poems. They're called divine sonnets. And number six is one that's that's quite special. And there's, there's two lines in it that I want you to listen for that relate to our, our text this evening. So be patient. This is only about 12 lines, but this is John Donne. And he's speaking, by the way, of his, his imminent death. This is my play's last scene. Here heavens appoint my pilgrimage's last mile and my race. Idly yet quickly run hath this last pace. My span's last inch, my minute's latest point. And gluttonous death will instantly unjoint my body and soul, and I shall sleep of space. But my ever-waking part shall see that face, whose fear already shakes my every joint. Then, as my soul to heaven, her feast seat takes flight, and earth-born body in the earth shall dwell, so fall my sins that all may have their right to where they are bred and would press me to hell. Impute me righteous 
thus purged of evil, for thus I leave the world, the flesh, the devil. There's a beautiful contrast there between his sins, which by right should, he says, press me to hell, as compared to this plea, impute me righteous, purged of all, of all evil. It's a beautiful, beautiful expression of a man who is being shaken, he says, as death approaches, as many people do. And some of you have stood by somebody or been near them when they're death, and they're people that are shaken with tremendous fear in those moments that come. And it's the one thing that exposes ultimately where our confidence is found. It shakes you down to the very bottom of where is your confidence, where is your hope. And that's why a passage like this is so helpful for us and why Martin Luther considered this the very center of the gospel, these verses. And they show us where our confidence is found. What is that ground of our salvation? What is the foundation? Where does it sit? Where does it reside? And this evening, we're going to see that it resides in three words. Now, some of you, when I read this passage, you said, you know, this reminds me of a passage you read on December 3rd of 2023. <laughs> and I would say, you have an excellent memory. Because that's the truth. That was the first half. Remember, we looked at these same passages, and there we looked at the gift of justification, emphasizing grace and faith, the gift of salvation. But this evening, we come to the same verses. And here, we're not looking at all the passages, but looking at these three words that show us what is the ground of our salvation of our justification, what is it built upon? So that's our errand this evening. You see those three words um, in your bulletin. All right, redemption. Notice what it says in verse 24, that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So as a way of reminder, what is justification? And it's two things, remember, it's two things. It's the forgiveness of our sins, and it's also being accepted as righteous in the sight of God through the righteousness of Christ. Last time we talked about how that's received by faith. But here it says our justification is through redemption. Literally, ransom. And this idea of redemption here, this ransom that Christ paid, has two ideas. Two inseparable ideas. And the first idea, of course, is the price. That's probably the first thing you thought of with redemption. What is the price of our justification? It means our justification was, was purchased through a payment. Now, God has given us several words and concepts with regard to our sin and the remedy that comes through the grace of God. So our sin in Scripture is seen as pollution. And therefore, it defiles us. Sin defiles us. So what do we need? We need to be cleansed. But sin is also described in Scripture as bondage. Slavery, it enslaves us. Therefore, what do we need? We need to be freed. We need to be delivered. But sin is also described as debt. It's indebtedness. And therefore, it condemns us. And we need to be forgiven. We need to be delivered from that, from that indebtedness. So that's what redemption is. It's that the idea that the debt of our sin has to be paid. And of course, the Old Testament, what was that payment? It was sacrifices, Right? It was the life and the blood of the sacrificial victim. And all those things anticipated Christ, who would be our sacrificial victim. And in the gospel, we would say that our justification is purchased by Christ. That this salvation that you and I enjoy, this forgiveness of sins, this acceptance, it comes at the cost of Christ's 
life, that he's the one who bore the debt of our sin. All of our guilt is imputed to him. It's credited to his account. And because of that, because Christ pays the price of our sin, God does not repay us as our sins deserve. What is the penalty of sin? What is the wages of sin? It's death. That's what Christ paid. We like to say that God justifies us freely. And that's true. He justifies us freely by his grace. But when we say that, we should always remember that God does not justify us for free. We paid nothing, that's true, but Christ paid everything. That this salvation, this justification, comes because one redeemed us from the debt of our sin. Colossians 2, 13, 14 puts it this way. It says, you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, as Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That debt has been paid and that price was paid by Christ. So that's the first idea that we attach to redemption. It's a price. But secondly comes the idea of deliverance. That this price brings deliverance. It brings freedom. This payment secures a result. And this idea of ransom in the New Testament assumes this. It assumes that you've been previously found in bondage. And it could be through lots of reasons. Maybe you were a slave. Maybe you were a criminal. Maybe you were a prisoner of war. But you were redeemed. Think of how the salvation of Israel is described when God redeemed them out of Israel. It says they delivered, God delivered them out of Egypt, out of that house of, of bondage. They needed not only uh, for, for blood over those, those households, they needed to be delivered, and that's what God did. So as our ransom, what does Christ do? He delivers us from the power of sin. And we need to get this right. It's not just the condemning power of sin. It's also the reigning power of sin, Paul says in Romans 6. It's also the stinging power of sin that Christ delivers us from all of this through his death and his resurrection. And that's real freedom to be delivered from sin. It's the very thing that the world promises but cannot deliver. You have non-Christian friends, I have non-Christian friends who say I'm not strapped down by all of your rules and all these things, I'm free to do as I wish and not sing, they're terribly deceived. They're in chains. They cannot help themselves but to sin. But that's not true for the Christian. We are delivered. We have this freedom. So Christ paid this price that delivered us, but what did he pay with? Well, look at verse 25. It says, God put, God put forward, Christ Jesus, as a propitiation, a propitiation by his blood. Now, that's a lot of syllables, propitiation. And there are some translations that like a simpler word, we love this word. And ben Westerfeld was a seminary student, was our missionary for many years in Quebec. He's still there. He brought his daughter Melanie up to me after church as a two-year-old. She said, he said, Melanie, tell Pastor Troxel. She said, Popithiathan. <laughs> I said, I like this child. <laughs> when we say Christ is propitiation, there's a couple ideas we have in mind. The first is the offense of sin. There's a sin. But there's also the offended righteousness of God. You see, the offense of sin is that sin has offended God's holiness. But it's also provoked his righteousness. <laughs> These go hand in hand. 
Let's say, young men, you're walking down the street with your girlfriend, and a guy comes up and he insults your girlfriend, says something terrible to her, but he's offended her. He's also provoked your righteousness. You're angry. It's the same thing. And Charles Hodge says it's God's righteousness that enforces his holiness. It's, it's God's righteousness that brings the muscle, as it were, to do something about this, this holiness. This is a terrible situation, this offense of sin, that, God, that our sin has offended God's holiness, but it's also provoked his righteousness, a sense of, of justice. But this is where the blood of Christ comes in because it's the blood of Christ that covers our sin and it removes sin's offense and its guilt so that it cannot be seen. We could put it this way, it's like Frodo's cloak that the elves made, that it covered Sam and himself and that screech slope and mortar so that nobody could see them, they just blended in. It's like a soldier's looking at them, but he can't see them. And the same is true for the blood of Christ, it covers our sin that we call this expiation, it deals with sin. But see, there's, there's a sin, but there's still the sinner. And that's why the word propitiation is so important. There's the offense of the sinner. And that sin has provoked the righteousness of God. Something has to be done about the sinner, just as something had to be done about the sin. And that sin has incited God's moral justice, his righteous integrity. And this is exactly where God is not like us. God is not indifferent to sin. It's not like he's unmoved by sin. That's moral failure. He's not like us. You and I see on the news, somebody got cheated or robbed or hurt, and we say, oh, that's terrible. We forget about it within two days because we're apathetic and we're disinterested about sin. God is not like that. He is not like that. When God becomes angry, it's for the right reasons. And we are the objects of that wrath. Jonathan Edwards says, wrath is God's resolute action in punishing sin. Well, guess what? You and I are the objects of that wrath by nature. But there's Christ. There's Christ. Christ made propitiation by his blood. And what we mean by that is that he has exhausted the wrath of God against us. He's absorbed, we could say, all God's anger in himself by making propitiation by his blood. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. And we would put it this way, that, that Christ has quenched the fire of God's wrath. He swallowed up every drop of that condemnation so that we're not just covered, but it's also exhausted the wrath of God. There's a man I've met. He's, he's not a close friend. His name is Don Collett. He's a graduate of, of Westminster Seminary, California. He's from Montana. And one time he and a friend were walking in a field in Montana that had just had a fire. And they're walking through uh, this field, and look, and here is a duck that was caught in the fire. And his friend took his cowboy boot underneath the duck and just flipped it over. And underneath were all these ducklings, still alive. Because the mother duck, what did she do? She covered the ducks, but she also exhausted all that cruelty and death of fire in herself and her own body to preserve the life of her ducklings. This is what Christ has done. A propitiation means that he's absorbed all that anger, but it also means that he has won God's favor. And we should look at it this way, that when God forgives us of our sins, we lose all that debt of our sin, but we also gain something. By the riches of his grace, we gain the righteousness 
of Christ. There's a negative column and there's a plus column. And many Christians, if you ask them, what is it that Christ has done for you? They would say, he's forgiven all of my sins. Oh, that's great. Your debt is gone. But what about this column over here? And you and I can say we're rich. We're rich in the righteousness of Christ that the God has richly poured out upon us and imputed to us, credited to our account. And of course, let's get this all in perspective. It says God is the one who put Christ forward. All of this is by God's sovereign grace. It's through his initiative, this origin of the gospel that lies in the love of the Father. There's nothing more that the Father could do to prove that he is for us and not against us than sending his son like this to be the propitiation of our sins. What a wonderful word this is. But why did God do this? Why did he have to do this, we could say? It was to show God's righteousness. That's what he says in verses 25 and 26. This was to show God's righteousness. You see, in the past, Paul says that God did not pour out that full measure of his anger and his righteous wrath against all sin. He could have done that, but he did not choose to do so. Instead, it says in divine forbearance, he passed over those former sins. And what he's saying is that God suspended his judgment for a time. You could literally say he held back. But this is grossly misunderstood because people read something like this and they think that God has turned a blind eye to sin or that somehow God is winking at it or that God forgot. Scripture tells us this is nothing but God's patience. Even Peter says even that patience is interpreted as indifference, as if God is slow. Well, he's slow to anger. But somehow God's going to let it slide. That's not the case with our God. His integrity is at stake. And he's reserving his judgment. He's very clear about that. That judgment is in reserve. But for right now, it says in verse 26, with the coming of the gospel, God shows his righteousness at the present time. He shows himself to be two things simultaneously, which is unbelievable, just and the justifier. That God retains his integrity as a just God, and yet he looks upon sinners and he could justify them. How is that possible? It's because God's righteousness is vindicated through the work of Christ through this redemption that he pays, through this propitiation that Christ won through his obedience at the cross. At the heart of our doctrine of redemption is the righteousness of God, and we need that to be retained in all of its integrity. You see, it's interesting that when you hold out the cross of Christ, you could say, what is it? The scripture says there are several streams of God's character that flow through the cross. There are some places where scripture says, this is a demonstration of the power of God. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Or here what we see is the wisdom of God, despite the fact that the world says this is foolishness. Or here we see this demonstration of the grace of God, this unmerited gift. Or here we see the love of God in Romans 5. But the cross also shows us the righteousness of God. It's a cross that shows us that God cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his own character. He can't compromise his own righteousness. He cannot let sin go unpunished. He can't simply... Passover sin forever. And so Christ has to pay. And when Christ pays, God is not lenient with his son. He doesn't lessen the punishment with regard to his son. He doesn't slacken the requirements. He doesn't change 
the standards. That's impossible. Otherwise, we're not saved. But here is the glory and the wonder of the gospel. Because God did not spare his son all the penalty that our sins deserved. God does not withhold from us all the benefits that the death of his son deserves. Christ has exhausted all the wrath of God against us. He's purchased the favor of God that is for us. All because of this, the cross shows us that God cannot deny the righteousness of his own character. He cannot let sin go unpunished. But it also shows us that God cannot deny the righteousness of his son. And he cannot let such a sacrifice go unrewarded. The father cannot ignore what sin deserves, but he cannot ignore what such righteousness deserves. God pours out on his son the fullness of his righteous anger, all of the wrath that God deserves, that we deserve is, is imputed to Christ, but God pours out on us the fullness of his son's righteousness. All of that is imputed to us. The gospel hangs upon this, that God is both just and he is the justifier, even when he declares sinners like you and me as righteous. It's because of this, because Christ obtained our righteous standing, and at the same time, God has retained his righteous integrity. Deeper than all of our depravity is the reality of what Christ has done, what he has fulfilled, what he has satisfied for us. And because you and I are united to Christ by faith, we have this righteous standing before God. And I think that as we struggle with our doubts and our unbelief with regard to the gospel, I think we need to do what Isaiah tells us to do, or what God says through Isaiah to do, Isaiah 1.18. And it's one of those places in the scripture where God says, come let us reason together. And he's saying, I want you to come stand right here beside me, and I want you to see something the way I see it. And he says, though your sins are like crimson, they shall be as white as snow. Your sins are undeniably red, but there shall be like wool. We need to see the son the way the father sees the son. And when the father looks at that life of obedience, when he looks at this sacrificial death, when he, he looks at the righteousness of his son, he sees it for what it is. And we should too. He sees this love that would love the father to the very end and endure every single terrible requirement that the Father lays before him. A love so strong that nothing could stand in the way. A love that says that I lay down my life of my own accord. No one takes it from me. Scripture tells us that he set his face towards Jerusalem. He set it like flint, knowing the cruelty that awaited him there. We see this sheer determination to rescue you and me from our sins, to go to the very end, to pay any price, to do whatever it needs to be done, he wants to do it. And so the father looks upon this and he praises this obedience, this sacrifice and this righteousness for what it is, it is perfect. And you and I should see it as God sees it. As we think of the sum total of Christ's righteousness, as we look in his life of obedience, Christ has fulfilled all righteousness. He comes to John the Baptist to be 
baptized. And John the Baptist says, this is all wrong. You should be baptizing me. And Christ says, no, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. This is just a picture of what is to come on the cross. This is not for me. This is for the sinners that I love, just like on the cross. That's not for me. That's for them. This is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. As we look upon his substitutionary death, it satisfies all righteousness. It completely satisfies the righteousness of God by his blood. And as we think of the power of the resurrection, he is vindicated in righteousness. And it proves, as one person has said, that the check of redemption has cleared. This is the righteousness that God's righteousness required him to require. This is the righteousness that is imputed to us by grace. This is the righteousness that we freely receive by faith. In order that scripture can be right to say there is now no condemnation that is in for those who are in Christ Jesus. And brothers and sisters, this is literal. No condemnation means no condemnation. This is the center of the gospel, this right relationship we have with God. This righteousness that comes through redemption, that comes through propitiation. The solid ground of your righteous standing before God is in what Christ has done. And he did what you and I could not do for ourselves. It's Christ that died the death that you and I could not endure. It's Christ that satisfied this debt that you and I could not pay. It's Christ that conquered the enemy that that you and I could not defeat. It's Christ that gained the victory that you and I could not obtain. It's Christ who won this salvation that we do do not deserve. Does the work of Christ lack anything? As you look upon what he has done, can you find a a more pure sacrifice? Can you find a more pristine holiness, a more sure hope? Can you find a better redemption than what we see through Christ? Is there a greater obedience? Is there a deeper love? Is there more perfect righteousness than this? And this is why scripture in Romans 8 puts these rhetorical questions. Who can bring any charge against us? Look what Christ has done. Who's going to condemn us? It's not God. You may condemn yourself, but it's not God. Because he sees the work of Christ for what it is. And you you need to as well. This is the ground of why God forgives us of our sins. This is the ground and the foundation of why God accepts us as righteous in his sight. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One day God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. Scripture says, it will shake everything down to its very foundations. And everyone who builds their life on the foundation of Christ will stand. Everything else will fail and crumble. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All else is sinking sand. Brothers and sisters, our hope in life and death is sure for a very simple reason that God is just. And through Christ, he is the justifier of sinners like you and like me. Let's pray.
Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel itself. And we thank you, O Father, for these concepts which perhaps are not immediately accessible and yet are a clear path to the heart of our loving God. We thank you for that pristine and beautiful and ever-conquering righteousness of Jesus Christ, which you assure us is our righteousness. We claim it again this evening by faith. Thank you for these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.